Welcome to the Modern Law Revolution podcast sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association. This is the podcast featuring the successful and happy lawyers who are revolutionizing the practice of law in Colorado. I'm your co-host, JP Box. I'm a lawyer turned entrepreneur, consultant, and author, and a past chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. And I am the other co-host for today, Erica Holmes, founder of EL Holmes Legal Solutions, a modern law practice focusing on family law and attorney ethics and regulation. And I was the first chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. So I'm very excited for today's episode. Erica, why don't you clue in our listeners on what we're doing today? Well, as our audience knows from the sign-off from our previous podcasts, we have established the How to Start a Revolution Helpline. Uh, This is just one of many tools um, from MLPI to help all of the people out there become wonderful modern lawyers. Um, So all you have to do is call in, leave a message for one of our guests, and we will provide you with an answer. Well, the darndest thing has happened. People have started to actually call in. So much so that this entire episode is a collection of a bunch of those calls um, to give our listeners a smorgasbord of modern law knowledge. And we cannot do this alone. Today we have a third host joining us. You will remember our returning champion, Karen Safran, from the Tech 2.0 episode where we covered everything from cryptocurrency to legal apps. Uh, Karen has stepped up to the plate to become our official helpline Helion, as so poetically dubbed by Erica, and she'll be joining us at the end of every podcast from now on to share questions and answers that come through our helpline. Karen is a modern lawyer at Goodspeed and Merrill, whose practice focuses on complex commercial litigation and appeals, mediation, and arbitration. She's also a fellow of the Litigation Council of America, which is a trial lawyer honorary society comprised of less than one half of 1% of American lawyers. So welcome, Karen. Thank you for officially joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be an official, I guess, hellacious part of the team, perhaps. Um, And I just want to say, you know, looking forward to uh, seeing what sort of things pop up on the helpline. Um, We've really gotten a number of thoughtful questions, and I'm looking forward to exploring them with you and with our past guests. So with that, uh, why don't we get to the questions? Jumping right in, uh, our first question came from a recent DU Law School grad who was looking for some guidance on mentorship. Hi, my name is Brandon Dason, and I'm just about to graduate from uh, DU Law uh, next week, actually. I'm very excited about that, but I have a couple questions about, like, I guess, practicing. The big one is, about mentors and stuff, how do you know when a mentor is a good fit for you? And I guess based on that question, how do you find a modern lawyer mentor like specifically? Uh, Thank you so much. I really enjoy the podcast. This is a perfect question for our past guest, Ryan Payton. Ryan is the director of the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program. She joined us for the third episode of the Vision of Self miniseries. And I can't wait to hear Ryan's thoughts on this question. This is perfect for her to address. I've learned personally so much from Ryan in terms of her approach to defining professional identity and finding the right mentor is so critical in that regard. Uh, Ryan is the rare person who by asking the right questions helps you find your own unique and fulfilling direction as a professional. So without further ado, let's hear from Ryan. Those are great questions and questions that I get a lot, uh, especially around how can you tell if a mentor is a good fit for you? And and it's a difficult question to answer because that's going to be different for every mentee. 
uh, obviously mentoring is an art, not a science. And so there's no real equation for how to know if, if a mentor is a good fit. Uh, but generally speaking, we say that a good mentoring relationship will have four key components. Um, and those components are, you're going to have a thought planning relationship. You're going to have a cheerleading supporting relationship. You're going to have a process partnering relationship and you're going to have a capability developing relationship. And so uh, those are all four very large concepts. And so there's a lot of room uh, in each of those concepts to know whether there's a good fit there. Uh, but really what we're looking for in a quality mentoring relationship is certainly someone uh, who's going to be your cheerleader, your biggest supporter out there, even though their job is to give you um, hard feedback, constructive feedback. At the end of the day, they're going to be your biggest cheerleader. They're going to be supporting you behind the scenes and even out in public sometimes, too, uh, to the extent that they can help use their uh, privilege and power and, and, and credentials in the community to, to help you as well. So that supporter, that cheerleader is really critical. We also wanna see in a mentoring relationship, a lot of process partnering. And what does this mean? It means we don't want a mentoring relationship to be one-sided. So a good mentoring relationship is going to really have that partnership where both parties are working collaboratively to make that, um, that relationship work. And so there's a lot of collaboration. It's not just the mentee running the show or the mentor running the show. It really is a, a partnership, an equal pairing where both parties are responsible for the success of the relationship. Um, we also want that thought planning, thought partnering aspect of the relationship as well. This is where uh, that mentee is getting that sounding board. That mentor should be someone for a, men a mentee that that mentee can go to and feel like, yeah, yeah, this is somebody I can ask the hard questions. I know I'm going to get good feedback. I know this mentee or this mentor has my uh, best interest in mind, is, is going to help me uncover my blind spots, is going to challenge me to do better, but, but doing so in a partnership way, not in, um, not in telling them what to do so much, but in inviting them to ask themselves as a mentee, where do I want to go and how can I best get there? And then finally, we want a mentoring relationship that has that capability development. And this is really where the, the core of mentoring happens, where uh, that mentor is providing the feedback that the mentee needs to really grow and learn, taking feedback and transitioning it into action, looking for those developmental moments, uh, seeking those growth opportunities. A mentor who just sort of sits behind a desk and says, well, this is how I did it, so this is how you should do it probably isn't a great mentoring fit. You really want that mentor who's going to uh, tailor their mentoring to that mentee, help them find their unique and specific growth uh, and developmental opportunities. And as for finding an MLPI uh, mentor specifically, the best place to start is the Modern Law Practice Initiative. That is a collaborative of people uh, who are doing this work and who want to bring more people into the fold. And so uh, certainly as you're starting your mentoring journey, start there. That's where you're going to find the bulk of the people uh, who can help you. But then if you're not finding the right people there, give us a, at camp a call at the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program. We have a whole bank of modern law practicing mentors who will be glad to work with you. Uh, we can connect you with them and get you going in a really uh, critical mentoring relationship and help you to, to find your practice pathway. So thanks so much. Next, um, we, we got a number of questions about building a modern law practice and a modern lawyer's mindset. So this next question asks a bit about client development. Hi there, this is Karen Lamprey of the Law Office of Karen Lamprey, uh, also known as Lamprey Law. I've been practicing in a fairly traditional firm for about 10 years now, and at this point, most of my clients come from referrals. How do I start to find clients who want uh, to experience the modern law practice uh, considering that? 
Thank you so much. We submitted this question to Jessica Bednars. She's the Director of Innovation at the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, which is part of the Chicago Bar Foundation. She was a guest on our Vision of Client Episode 4. First, I would just say that there's no reason why you can't still um, build a client base through referrals because the, the same valuable services and hopefully the excellent, excellent customer service that you're offering your clients and that modern lawyers offer, I think any clients would be excited about that. So definitely don't eliminate um, referrals as a, a source of business. But some additional tips I would add, and um, this is a business development strategy that I would offer to any attorney, not just a modern law attorney, but certainly for a modern law attorney, um, which is basically a few different steps. So first, we like to tell people to really narrow your focus and kind of really hone in on a target market or two. And the more specific you can get, the better. And when we say target markets, we're not saying that these are only the markets that you're going to serve. It's just picking um, a client base or two where you can really get specific about who it is you want to serve. Because um, by doing that, it's easier then to create some messaging and create a business development and marketing campaign around it. So I think step one is probably just finding a target market or two. Um, and then step two, I would recommend then building a client persona for each of the target markets. And if you just Google client persona, um, you will see what I mean. They'll probably Several will probably come up. And basically what it is, is you're trying to um, build a, a profile for your target market. And by that, I mean, you're going to be answering questions like, where do people in this target market live? Um, where do they naturally gather, you know, outside of COVID times? Um, where do they look for information? Um, what are their concerns? Again, you're just really trying to learn as much as you can about a target market, because once you do that, then you're in a better position to create some messaging about your value proposition, um, and then figuring out what your marketing channels are going to be. And I should say too, when you're doing this, all of this should be authentic to you. So you shouldn't be doing something that doesn't feel natural for either you, or that wouldn't be natural for um, you know the clients that you ultimately want. So just an example, you know, if if you're serving an older population, um, we find that oftentimes maybe they're a little less tech savvy, although not always for sure. Um, but depending on where they gather, you know, if they're in nursing homes, for example, then, you know, part of your strategy might be to go to the nursing home and, and do presentations and build strategic partnerships with nursing homes. Um, but if it's a younger population or, or uh, you know, markets, target markets that find themselves on social media, well, then that should be where you should spend a lot of your time. Um, so again, just kind of figuring out who your target markets are, getting really specific, clean, creating a client persona, and I think then figuring out your business development strategy and your marketing channels for there. from there is a good place to start. And then of course, um, hopefully every modern lawyer has a website. So kind of alongside of what I just talked about, um, just some quick tips for your website, which is just letting people know all of the great things that you're offering as a modern lawyer. Um, so for example, if you're offering set fees in some way, uh, let people know that online. Talk about that, maybe even have a pricing page. Um, if you're offering electronic payments, wh whether that be ACH or credit cards or you know Bitcoin, whatever it is, 
Um, that's amazing. People want to know that and they want that. But if, if you don't tell them that you have it on your website, they may not know. So I recommend adding that on there. And then um, a third thing that comes to mind is just making it really convenient for people to schedule a consultation for, with you and at their convenience. So it, it seems to be very effective to have um, you know, a button that people can just press that's connected to your calendar in some way and letting them just schedule that. And if you charge for consultations, I would recommend just charging them right away via credit card or something else. So um, I know that is not um, you know, any sort of silver bullet, but again, I think it's a good framework to start with um, as a modern lawyer when you're looking to get clients. I love what Jess has to say about not needing new clients to practice modern representation, um, starting with the clients that you already have. Um, incorporating modern representation into a traditional practice doesn't mean you have to be mutually exclusive. It can't, doesn't mean that your older clients or your continuing clients are going to be one way and that your modern your new clients are going to be doing it a different way. Um, so they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, for example, um, if you um, start off offering your current clients, assuming that you're doing it like on an hourly rate, give them the option with the next service that they need um, to do a flat rate and let the clients pick how they want to do it. I mean, talk about client value and doing what they want, you're giving them, you know, different options to do and basically customized billing. So, um, but I'm pretty sure like once you start offering that flat fee that pretty much they're all going to go that way anyway. So, but I just love the, um, that concept that just pointed out that you don't have to only have new clients to start modern rep. Yeah, and I think that this one thing that's kind of cool about modern representation is it's it's not really a, a one size fits all. It can be really, really tailored to meet your client's needs. Um, and you can also tailor that practice to meet your particular vision and your particular goals. And, and really on that theme of professional development, uh, we, we received a question from the MLPI community page. And the question was, um, what tools did you find useful to help develop your professional vision? So we submitted this question to Kristen Belolan. Um, she is of KBN Council, and she is soon to be the senior staff attorney at Volunteers of Legal Service in New York City. Um, I, really, it's, a, it's been a, a great journey for her and just showing how you apply your vision and your, how your vision can change. Um, and she was a guest on our Vision of Self episode three. Hi, thanks for that question. Um, my name is Kristen Belolin, and I'm a solo attorney here in Denver, focusing on helping small businesses with transactional matters. And I am in the process of transitioning to a public interest role in New York City next month. So I'm in the midst of a career shift and geographic move back to my hometown. And so this question's really on point for me, and I'll just repeat it for everyone. What tools did you find useful to develop your professional vision? I found a couple things particularly helpful. Um, writing, I, I really liked an exercise that someone suggested to write out my professional history, all the roles I've had, even from when I was a kid, and kind of try to capture what um, sparked joy in me and what uh, where I felt engaged and inspired and where I did not, and that was really helpful. I also found um, mentoring and talking to peers to be very helpful. People I've found are super open and um, generous with their time and sharing of their experience, which helped me figure out what was 
what my vision was, you know, based on a lot of conversations and exploration. And I did a mentoring circle through the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program um, that really helped flesh out my vision as well through a lot of uh, listening and sharing with peers. And I would say, lastly, um, I did hire an individual business coach in the last six months, and it was transformative as far as clarity with my vision and helping me to come to the decision to make this next career change. Uh, I feel confident and in my decision and in my vision. And I think all of the tools I mentioned really came together to help me with that. So I hope that helps everyone. I love it when modern lawyers practice what they preach. Go Kristen. We got another question on the MLPI community page and that questioner wanted to know, how can a young lawyer go about asking for the type of support that is vital to building a psychological capital? It's a great question. And we've asked Martha Knudsen, the executive director of the Utah State Bar's Wellbeing Committee for the Legal Profession. Martha was a guest on the episodes 14 and 15, The Modern Mindset for Modern Law, The Power of Believing. And just before we get to Martha's answer, JP, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, these were two of my very favorite episodes that we did. Um, in a profession where we are quite literally trained to spot problems, we need a voice like Martha's to help us think positively and start spotting solutions and strengths that we have. It's such an important message for our profession's leaders, and it's vitally important that young lawyers have access to the type of psychological capital that Martha champions and preaches about. So I'm excited to hear how she can direct young lawyers to go about building that type of infrastructure that's so important to our health and well-being and quite frankly, our profession. That is a really great question. Um, psychological capital is something that definitely you can build on your own. However, as a young lawyer, it is so helpful to have um, the assistance and the support of um, other more experienced lawyers to help you really build um, your self-efficacy um, and learn the different steps involved in psychological capital. So how do you find somebody like that if you're a young lawyer? Um, you know, certainly there's a range of different places where a young lawyer could be, could be practicing. Um, you could be on your own, you could be in an organization. Um, so I would say the first place to start though is to look um, close to home. Is there somebody in your office that you can ask um, to mentor you on a, a subject or just even ask certain questions to? Um, and it could be something as simple as, hey, how do you prepare for a hearing? Or what would you do to start out with, um, with tackling a project like this? And just listen to them for five minutes. So if you can't find somebody in your organization that is willing to spend five minutes of time with you in that way, which sometimes happens, or if you are on your own, other ideas to find uh, mentors to work with. And, and when I say mentors, I'm not talking necessarily about somebody that is going to be with you 24 seven. You can have lots of mentors that spend varying amounts of time or even answer certain questions. So um, so if you can't find somebody in your organization or if you're solo, there's a, a few ways that you can go about finding somebody. Um, 
reach out to your local bar association because it could be that there is a mentoring program already set up that you could take advantage of. Um, you could look at um, your bar, like bar committees and see if there's a one in the area of law um, that, that you're interested in learning more about. You could join the committee or reach out to the committee chair and see if there would be somebody that would be willing to um, talk with you about a few things. You know, maybe maybe go and watch lawyers in court if you are trying to build self-efficacy or you're trying to um, build your skills around, um, around appearing in court. That's a great way to go and watch other people do the things that you want to learn how to do. Um, there's also uh, legal incubators which are different um, organizations that have two main goals. One is to help new lawyers learn new skills. Um, and at the same time, two, to um, expand access to legal services for the underserved or modest means population. So you go in and you learn how to do stuff, you're supervised, while at the same time you're serving clients that really need the help. And, and if there's there are a lot of states that have these organizations. And if you um, get on the ABA website and look up incubators, there is a directory for those kinds of groups. So that's another way to connect in with people that can help you build your psychological capital through mentoring. Um, and you know, finally, this and this is something that that I recommend all new lawyers do um, regardless, is build your own network reach out and, you know, collect a group of people that um, want to work together and help each other out with different skills. Here in Utah, there is a very, very active um, small firm and solo network, and they have a, a, a group on Facebook where, you know, they'll, they'll share ideas, they'll ask questions to each other, share resources and give mentoring um, across the board. And it, it, it's an awesome, awesome way for a new lawyer to um, find that help that they need from, from an outside professional. Our next caller had a good question, really thoughtful question about inclusivity and diversity. Hi, this is Marie Drake of the Drake Law Firm in Golden and Greenwood Village. And my question is, what steps would you recommend for someone like me to get more involved in building and sustaining a culture of like inclusivity and diversity? Where would I start? Um, I'm very curious about this and I'm doing my best, but I'd really, really like an answer and like to do more. Thank you. This is a perfect question for Sarah Scott, the CEO of the Center for Legal Inclusiveness. And she was one of our panelists on the vision of community. That was episode five. And I was so truly grateful for the insights and wisdom from all of our panelists that we brought together for that episode. In addition to Sarah Scott, we also had uh, Dean Eric Bono from DU Law School. We had Jessica Brown, our CBA president, who we'll hear from later in this episode. And of course, uh, Colorado Supreme Court Justice, Monica Marquez. And during our conversation on the state of the legal community, Sarah Scott framed our conversation so perfectly and so profoundly when she noted that we are living through two pandemics. One of course is the COVID-19 health pandemic and the other is the ongoing pandemic of racial violence. And framing that episode, 
I think really helped us look at how do we as a legal community address both of these pandemics and start to build the type of community that we want to see. And so I think she's the perfect person for this question. What steps would I recommend for someone to get more involved in building and sustaining a culture of inclusivity and diversity? Where can I start? You know, first of all, I would want to know, are we talking about individuals? Are we talking about law firms? Are we talking about, you know, lawyers who are solo practitioners? But no matter kind of who those people are, the most important place to start is really examining one's core values and really taking a step back and taking the time to think about what their core values are, right? As it relates to the issues of equity, diversity, and inclusivity, what they think about issues like allyship, like anti-racism, and what they think that they can offer in those realms. And in order to really understand what they can offer, they need to become educated and stay educated and, you know, CLI, uh, hopefully you'll put CLI in the chat. Our website, centerforlegalinclusiveness.org, is a great starting place. It's a place where you can learn a lot about equity, diversity, and inclusivity, best practices. We have an educational library there where you can watch some really, really great programming. Um, I want to say that the best diversity programs without inclusivity will absolutely 100% fail. So on Maslow's hierarchy, we know that belonging is number three. And we know that inclusivity includes belonging. So if we are not on-ramping programs before we bring diverse team members into our law firms, or into you know, our other legal organizations, then we have missed the point. And there are very specific ways to be inclusive. CLI trains a lot on inclusivity and what that means, but really taking a holistic approach to the person that you know, is joining your law firm or joining an organization. Um, if you're talking about an individual, really taking a holistic approach as you look at yourself, you know, and what you might be able to give to this movement that we're seeing as systemic racism is finally at the forefront of the American psyche. And I also want to say that it really depends on where people are in their EDI journey, right? It can be a really long process for law firms and a really important law, uh, a really important, excuse me, process for law firms to go through their values, to go through their old strategic plans. And I always say that any strategic plan written prior to 2020 is completely moot. Um, but go through their policies and to do so, you know, with a lens toward equity, diversity and inclusivity and to get help along the way. You know, that's something else that CLI can, of course, offer is those consultation services. Um, individuals need to stay reflective and really understand what they can commit to and what they cannot commit to. 
Can they commit to being an ally or can they commit to being an anti-racist? Those are two very different things, um, two very different ways to be part of the movement in a positive way and to be incredibly supportive of BIPOC communities. But again, looking at what you can do personally so that you don't sign up for something that you, you know, simply don't have the bandwidth for is very important. So the, that would be really my answer is to know that without inclusivity, diversity will fail. Um, to learn about inclusivity, you know, to keep staying educated uh, as things change daily, as it relates to equity, diversity, and inclusivity, and best practices. You know, you can stay um, up to date looking at our website. And of course, you can Google these things and find your own special podcast that you like. There's a lot of resources out there. But um, building and sustaining a culture takes looking at those core values and um, really understanding inclusivity. And, and really, I think that's that's one thing that, that's just so impressive, not to toot our own horn too much, but the, the number of just high quality guests and who really have been adding so much conversation and so much thoughtfulness to all of the topics that have been covered. Um, it's just really one of the, the fun and incredible things about this pod. It's another reason why I'm kind of excited to, to be along. Um, and, it's, and it's not just professional development. We've also dealt with issues that are really important in terms of changing the way that we are servicing clients and some of the ethical implications of that. And for instance, we received a question um, that pertains to how a lawyer ethically keeps track of and charges flat fees. And this is a bit of a, a lengthy technical question, but in answer, but I think it's, it's super important because it's, it's such a, a new avenue um, that we're all exploring, that we're all working through, that it's definitely worth taking a little time to kind of focus on and, and talk about. So we reached out to um, Jonathan White um, of the Office of Attorney Regulation, um, who his official title is Professional Development Counsel and Inventory Counsel at the Colorado Supreme Court Office of Attorney Regulation Counsel. And he was on um, episode 12, The Ethics of Modern Law. So let's um, hear the question and they answer. Hi, my name is Michael and I'm a solo practitioner practicing in state law. Um, and my question is, I'm wondering about flat fees and whether I can deposit flat fees directly into my operating account. And uh, also, does uh, the client have to approve me transferring money into my operating account every time I hit a milestone? Um, I appreciate your help. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is John White, Professional Development Counsel and Inventory Counsel at the Office of Attorney Regulation Counsel. And here to address the question regarding what happens um, and whether I ever deposit flat fees directly into my operating account. And the second part, does the client need to approve my transferring money into my operating account every time I hit a milestone? So I will endeavor to answer both parts of this question uh, using the rules of professional conduct. And let's start with the first part regarding the deposit of flat fees directly into operating accounts. I would say that as a general rule, no. 
flat fees for services that you have not yet performed need to be deposited in your trust account, not in your operating account. Um, for most Colorado lawyers, that trust account is going to be your COLTAF account. I think the only exception to that general rule would be a situation where you have earned those fees at the time that they're paid. But let's look to the rules of professional conduct uh, to work through this in a little more detail. And uh, for any trust or operating account question, I recommend lawyers look at rules 1.15 capital A through 1.15 capital E of the rules of professional conduct. So those rules, if you look at them, they pertain to safekeeping of property and your general duties regarding property that you hold for clients and third parties. Those are pretty dense rules, but they're important rules because they help us answer questions like this and other questions like what kind of records do I need to keep um, related to my trust accounts and my operating accounts? How, what happens if there's um, uh, funds and trust where I can't locate the owner? They address all these different scenarios. So let's look to them now for guidance on this question. Rule 1.15 capital B subsection A1 says that you have to maintain a trust account that's separate from business and personal accounts into which you deposit all funds entrusted to your care and any advance payment of fees that are not earned yet or expenses not yet incurred. So therein is the answer to our, our question about whether you deposit flat fees ever directly into your operating account if those fees have yet to be earned or those expenses have not yet to, um, been incurred, you need to put uh, those fees directly into your trust account as opposed to your operating account. Uh, looking a little bit further at this rule, 1.15 capital B subsection A2, then talks about what uh, the purpose of an operating or business account is, and that's where you deposit all funds received for legal services you've performed. So I think that, that that should help resolve the question of whether you deposit flat fees directly into your operating account. I recommend taking a look at those rules and remember the, the, the maxim there that if you haven't yet performed the services for which the fees have been paid, the fees need to be deposited into trust. And then you can move them to operating as you perform services to earn those fees. And I think that that segues into our, our second um, part of the question, which is, does the client need to approve my transferring money into my operating account every time I hit a milestone? So remember uh, 1.15 capital B subsection A2 that I talked about says that your operating account is where you're going to deposit funds for services um, you have performed, uh, not services that have yet to be performed. Um, when it comes to flat fees, there's also some guidance from the rules of professional conduct that should put your mind at ease in terms of transferring funds into the operating account once you've performed a certain milestone. And that's that rule that you need to consult is rule 1.5H. Uh, so moving away from the, the rules related uh, generally to trust accounts, 1.5H is the rule that deals with flat fee representation. It was added 
uh, or excuse me, I should say 1. Rule 1.5 was amended a few years back to address flat fees. And I really encourage all lawyers who are engaged in flat fee representation to look at section H. And that section talks about how if you're engaging in flat fee representation, you need to put the terms of that flat fee engagement in writing and describe the services you're going to be performing for that flat fee, the amount to be paid, as well as if any portion of the flat fee is to be earned before the representation concludes, the amount earned upon completing a specific task. That specific task is what's commonly referred to as maybe a milestone or a benchmark. So you have to document that in writing for the client so the client knows okay, upon performing this discrete task, John is going to move a portion of the flat fee from trust to operating and treat it as an earned fee for doing that service. So if you've met that requirement, you've given the client notice as to the fact that once you perform a certain task or hit a certain milestone, you're going to move a portion of the flat fee from trust to operating. Now remember that's the purpose of providing the client with notice as the rule uh, suggests. And I would also suggest that when you move the uh, that portion of the flat fee from trust to operating, uh, that you send the client a statement of hours worked or, or some sort of statement saying this task has been performed pursuant to the fee agreement. I'm uh, now going to move X amount of, of the flat fee from trust to operating. Okay, so I think the question could arise, well, what happens if there's a dispute about my earning that portion of the fee? Luckily here, we've got rule 1.5H again, giving us some guidance. Look specifically to Roman numeral four in that rule, which says, if there's a dispute, over a portion of the flat fee that you've earned or even over earning the flat fee entirely to follow rule 1.15 capital A subsection C. And I know that we're, we're kind of um, going through a lot of uh, numbers in terms of rules here, but I think it's really important to look at these uh, specific rules because they give guidance and really good guidance when it comes to what to do if certain situations arise. So if we look at 1.15 capital AC, that rule pertains to how you to handle a dispute over property you're in possession of. So in that in this situation, a dispute over uh, a portion of flat fees um, that have been paid to you. And that rule says that if there's a dispute over possession of property, so here funds that have been entrusted to your care, you must keep that uh, property separate from your other property. So what does keeping separate mean? Let's say that the funds have yet to be moved over to your operating account. I would say that they're being kept in trust. They're separate from your operating or any personal um, account that you may have. They're still there in trust. And I would say keep them there in trust until the dispute is resolved. But what happens if you've moved the funds out of trust to operating, you've treated them as earned fees, maybe you've sent that statement of hours worked or a specific task has been performed to the client, and now the client is disputing whether you should um, have earned those fees. 
In this situation, look to Colorado Bar Association Ethics Opinion 118, published in 2008 by the CBA's Ethics Committee, and that can be found at www.cobar.org. And that opinion deals with a situation where you have withdrawn fees from trust because there is no dispute at the time you withdrew them from trust uh, as to whether you earned them, and you believe that the withdrawal of fees from trust to operating was proper. So what, to, what do you do now if a dispute arises over the funds that you've withdrawn from trust? The opinion instructs that in that situation, the lawyer is not required or significantly permitted to return the disputed amount to the lawyer's trust account that's holding funds of any other clients. Uh, and it, the, the opinion continues and says that although the lawyer is not required to do this, it recommends placing the disputed amount in a separate trust account that holds only the disputed am amount. So that is what the ethics committee recommends if you if the situation arises, say in the course of flat fee representation, where you've earned a portion of the fee and you believe that you've earned a portion of the fee, you've moved it from trust to operating and then a dispute arises. Again, that's ethics opinion 118. Overall, I suggest for lawyers, you know, if, if you do have a uh, specific question, about the rules of professional conduct that maybe the rule or the comment to the rule doesn't specifically outline what to do in a unique situation. Those ethics committees, formal opinions are really helpful to look at. They're available at cobar.org, whether or not you're a member of the Colorado Bar Association, they give good guidance. Remember too, that that ethics committee that, that uh, writes those opinions Many of its members volunteer their time as well to staff the ethics hotline that you can call if you do have a discrete question uh, related to uh, ethical issue or rule of professional conduct issue. So I hope that this has been helpful um, addressing these two questions and also giving you some additional ideas on what to do when ethics issues arise. Uh, it's been my pleasure to walk through this. I would say too, if you do have a question, while I can't give legal advice, I can certainly point you in the direction of a rule or an ethics opinion to consider. And you're welcome to reach out directly to me here at the Office of Attorney Regulation Council. Um, so just a quick clarification on Jonathan's incredibly thorough answer about um, giving notice and what your requirements are to do that um, to transfer the money. Um, so the clarification is that notice is required, not permission. If you have the milestones outlined in the fee agreement, you satisfy the notice requirement under the rule and you can move the money as soon as it's earned. You don't need the client's permission to do it when you hit that milestone. So um, you can send a second notice notice if you want to, um, to inform the client that you have transferred the money um, and hit that milestone, but it's not required under the rule. Um, it is a falls into a, a best practice to do that, um, but know that you can do this after the fact. So, you know, um, you collect the money under the fee agreement, you hit the milestone, you move the money from your trust account into your operating account. And then you can send out like a periodic invoice, um, you know, monthly, bi-monthly basis saying I hit these milestones um, during this time period. Um, so you don't have to do it like every time that you hit the milestone, like right at that time. Because uh, we love best practices, but we also love practicing law and having time to do so. So let's make those best practices as efficient as possible. And I think just looking at efficiency and as we are all sort of emerging from our COVID quarantine cocoons, um, and as this show is a little bit of a look back on some of our past guests, probably our, our final question may be the best way to kind of wrap up this episode. 
Um, this is another question from the MLPI community page. And the, the questioner wanted to know, in what ways do you believe our legal community has grown stronger over the past year? And where do we need to continue growing? And uh, this, I mean, this is just kind of a fantastic question just for where we are today. And we submitted it to Jessica Brown. Jessica is the president of the CBA and partner in the Denver office of Gibson Dunn. And she was a, a guest on the Vision of Community, uh, which is episode five. And I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Obviously this past year has been extremely challenging. In addition to a devastating and prolonged public health crisis and shocking racist brutality and murders, we faced unprecedented levels of unemployment, 100-year wildfires, a very divisive election, an attack and insurrection at the United States Capitol, a surge in hate crimes targeted at the Asian American Pacific Islander community, including the Atlanta shooting spree, allegations of sexual and gender harassment against the Colorado Judicial Branch, and the mass shooting at King Supers in Boulder. These crises have strained us as individuals, but they have strengthened us as a community by causing us to be even more connected and unified. As just one example, the CBA, DBA, and six diversity bars came together in the wake of George Floyd's murder to talk about how we can make a difference. Among other things, we agreed to collaborate like never before on a requirement for lawyers across the state to be educated on issues relating to equity, diversity, and inclusivity, or EDI. Leaders from all eight of these bar associations worked together with Attorney Regulation Council Jessica Yates, Center for Legal Inclusiveness CEO Sarah Scott, and other prominent members of our legal community. And within just about half a year, these leaders made it happen. The Supreme Court recently unanimously approved the new requirement for two EDI credits every three years. With that, we've joined a list of nine other states that have made EDI training mandatory for their lawyers. Our community also has come together to talk about and offer programming on important topics, including policing the police, mitigating implicit bias, providing pandemic-related pro bono assistance, addressing and destigmatizing mental health issues, leading with empathy, defending our constitution and advancing the rule of law, being an upstander to prevent and address sexual and gender harassment, undertaking anti-racist transformation, addressing the legal desert that exists in parts of Colorado, standing up to hate and discrimination against our Asian American and Pacific Islander community, diversifying our state and federal bench, and leading through crisis and change, including leadership strategies and opportunities for lawyers in greater Colorado. We need to continue to focus very intentionally on creating an equitable, inclusive environment where our BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color leaders and members, as well as all our diverse members, including lawyers in greater Colorado and in our rural communities in particular, can truly feel like they belong. We are making tremendous progress in this regard, and we need to maintain this focus and continue to dismantle barriers to equity and inclusivity. Wow. I think Jessica nailed it. Can't improve upon a perfect answer. It's both inspirational and directional. And I think that's a great way to wrap up our grab bag episode. I just want to give a huge thank you to our fellow revolutionaries for asking all of these thought-provoking questions and our amazing past guests who provide so much direction, so much inspiration, so much wisdom. 
Um, and of course, thank you, Karen, for joining us today and going forward to be our official helpline Helion um, and putting together this grab bag show of modern law knowledge. We look forward to having you as a constant going forward. Thanks, JP. Today was a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to curating the next batch of questions that come in. For those of you wanting to be revolutionaries on our future episodes, just call the How to Start a Revolution helpline and leave us a message. We will actually play your question on the next podcast and provide an answer. Just make sure to leave your name and the name of your firm or organization so everyone knows who their fellow revolutionaries are. The phone number is 303-824-5399. That's 303-824-5399. The number will also be posted on the MLPI community page. Welcome to the revolution. You've got questions, we have answers. And thank you all for joining the Modern Law Revolution podcast. Keep those questions coming. Yeah.